a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the heart, in, in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that everyone will fear him. Whatever is has already been, and whatever will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. Let's uh, join our hearts together in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're privileged to sit under your word and to hear it. We're privileged to have it in our language. We are so, so privileged to have your Holy Spirit who inspired the scriptures living inside your people. Will you please now open your word to us and make it a living word, a word of truth from on high, a word of encouragement, a word that strengthens faith, a word that leads us to you and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Over this past week, we've tasted something of one of those uh, famous Tasmanian wet winters. Uh, who enjoys those, those times? I call them days that don't achieve liftoff. They, uh, they're just uh, grey and you just don't achieve much in terms of uh, temperature. But I want you to look at these two pictures behind me. I can't, the screen isn't on. All right, it is there. Um, the first is of a man who's walking his dog on a snowy winter's day in Waratah on Tassie's west coast. It's true. If you can look clearly, I don't know if you can see it, but on the sign it says Taz Ads. Waratah on a wet, cold winter's day in Tassie. But the other photo 
is of a plane above the clouds under the sun. Glorious sunshine. Now think about this. It is entirely possible that that could be the experience of that aircraft flying to Adelaide or Perth right above Waratah at the time the photo was taken. It's entirely possible. We know in theory the sun always shines above the clouds. But when the weather's bad, we get taken up with what's going on around us. And that's not actually a really bad idea in winter in Tassie. But I want to put it to you that it's always wise to remember things above us can affect us just as much, if not more, than things around us. Things like UV rays, solar flares, meteors, satellites. The writer of Ecclesiastes describes himself as the teacher. And the teacher uses this kind of above and below language. His thinking is in terms of life here below under the sun. It's one of the favourite terms in Ecclesiastes. He uses either under the sun or under the heavens 31 times in this book. So turn with me to Ecclesiastes 3 and let's have a look at this passage because it's talking about life under the heavens. In a poetic masterpiece of eight majestic verses, the teacher sums up life as we know it under the sun. He says, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to tear down and a time to build, etc. For eight majestic verses. Then in verse 9, the teacher raises the inevitable question that affects all of us in one way or another. What does the worker gain from all their toil? He's querying, do we work hard all our life and experience summer and winter and, and life and death? And f What's it all about? Do we just grow old and die? Think about it. What if, what if you go bankrupt and everything you've worked so hard for ends up as someone else's possession? What do you gain from all your toil? Think about a single mother who is forced to watch her only child die of leukaemia. What has she given herself for? What has she spent herself for? This is the kind of question that is going through the mind of the writer of Ecclesiastes, the teacher. So in verses 10 and 11, the teacher declares... I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. The first eight verses have just celebrated things like springtime and harvest, summer and winter, birthdays and dancing, 
Life has some really beautiful moments. So why does he say that God has laid a burden on the human race? Let me illustrate why. We celebrated our youngest son's wedding last Christmas, just a week before Christmas. It was a fantastic time of celebration. A whole family came together down from Queensland. We all met together. And afterwards, we all contracted COVID. And that was not nice. And five days before the wedding, we found out that my wife had cancer. And that was a total shock. Life is not an unmixed blessing. It's not always nice or predictable. The first funeral I ever conducted was of a man who was really looking forward to retirement after 40 plus years of teaching. And in that first year that he retired, he contracted cancer and died. Life can be cruel, deeply disappointing. This is what the writer, the teacher is wrestling with. He's saying, what does a worker gain from all their toil? Why do these things happen? Why can I be robbed of the pleasure that I'm seeking? Why can I not always know what's going on or what, what's going to happen in the future? He's saying that we suffer from a gnawing realisation that something is missing. There's a deeper reason inside of us that life is painful. He says, God has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. It's like he's saying, I know in the depths of my being there's got to be more, but I just can't figure out what it is. From the beginning to the end, living my life under the sun as I look around me, I, I struggle to make sense of it. Why? I could, I could lose my job. I could lose my family. I could lose my life. What's it all for? He's grappling with the kind of questions that every generation has had to struggle with through history. What we learn from what the teacher is saying here is that experience gained from life looking around us, trying to make sense of what happens, doesn't always fit together and make rational sense. Where does God who lives above the heavens fit in? What about angels from the realms of glory? or evil spirits, where do they sleep at night? Why is there so much beauty and horror in the world? Why does so much pain and dislocation and disruption happen? Some of us experience things that no scientist or doctor or psychiatrist or physicist can fully explain. Ecclesiastes 3 presents us with the interplay of some radical truths that our modern world doesn't seem to understand or even want to know about. 
They're in denial over them. The first radical truth is that God is the creator of all things, visible and invisible, as the creed puts it. God is the creator. If you look, Ecclesiastes 3 is full of that understanding. Verse 11 tells us that God has made everything beautiful in its time. And those first eight verses have just described what he understands by that. Along with the rest of the Bible, Ecclesiastes is certain that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. As Christians, we know our origins. We know that God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So God created life as we know it on earth, including human beings to rule over all that we see. And this anchors us with a purpose and a meaning in life. But what about modern people in today's society who deny the Christian roots of our faith, who, who, who don't believe in a creator? What sense can they make of life? They don't accept or understand that God has made us male and female. We're seeing some of the implications of that. They don't accept that there is even a God in the first place, or if there is, we can't know him. It's like they're saying he's out of sight, out of mind. But as Christians... We know that we're not created to be independent or self-sufficient. We're made in God's image. We're made for a relationship with him. So God has made everything beautiful in its time and we can enjoy that. Like winter snow, skiing on Ben Lomond. Or the spring tulips at Table Cape. Or amazing raspberries in summer. And the beautiful colours of autumn. It's all around us here in Tassie. And as Christians, we can look at that and enjoy that to the glory of God. We say, wow, God, look at all that you have made. It's fantastic. But people who deny a creator just look around and try to find meaning in the creation itself because they deny there's a creator. Non-Christians can enjoy these things too. I'm not saying they can't. But without the proper knowledge of God, many of them end up as nature worshippers. They spend their lives painting and photographing it, making movies about the beauty and wonder of it, or planning their next adventure, but without a prayer or praise to the God who made it all. I really enjoy um, David Attenborough documentaries. But man, every time he... he he talks about billions of years or he talks uh, as if there's no creator and how marvellous it is and all this matter came together and from, the, from a big bang. I just want to shout at the TV. I, 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 all this around you, can't you see it? 
God has hardwired an awareness of forever things into us. And we will either attribute it to the creator or to the creation. So many today are attributing it to the creation. And this isn't the only generation where that's happened, all through history. Now, it says that God has put eternity into the heart of man. Now, that word eternity, the Hebrew word olam, literally means enduring, lasting, continuous. And so it's often translated as forever or eternity. You see it again in verse 14. I know that everything God does will endure forever. The same word that's translated as eternity in verse 11. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. So because we've been made in the image of God, the eternity of God himself corresponds to something inside of us. It's like answering to an echo. God is the creator. He made us in his image. He is eternal and he's put eternity into our hearts because we're designed to live in an eternal relationship with him. We have a capacity for eternal things. We're concerned about the future. We want to know the beginning and the end of things. Human being, beings are innately inquisitive about what they see and we strive to know the ultimate importance and purpose of life. But when we deny that there's a creator and we just look around us in creation and try and make sense of us, it's a burden. We, we can't put the threads together. And this is where the second radical truth comes out. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, the world has been plagued by sin that disrupts and disorders all things. Creation, fall. The teacher sees this as a burden. He experiences the fall as a burden that God has laid on the human race. So why is having eternity in our hearts a burden? Because no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Verse 11. No one can fathom that innate inquisitiveness, desiring to know winds up with a whole lot of theories and ideas and speculations. We behold the wonder of creation and in our hearts we know this world and our life must not be meaningless, but left to our own devices, we're clueless. We can sense there's more to life than we can see with our eyes. But apart from God, we can't figure out what it is. I remember a dear lady in, a, in one, of our one of the churches that I pastored back in Queensland. Her son committed suicide. And she said, he just felt like there was, there's got to be more to life than this. But I couldn't get through to him that it's about God. It's about his son, Jesus Christ. It, he, he just 
He couldn't get that. He didn't, it didn't seem to make sense to him. And in the end, he despaired and took his life. She was heartbroken. And wouldn't you be? Listen to Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19. Christians know this, but non-Christians don't. God said to Adam, Because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you will return. Our inward sense of eternity becomes a burden on us due to the curse God spoke over the ground and over our work with all its disruptive and disordering effects. He he said something similar to Eve and he cursed her and, and pain in childbirth. So there's disruption in family life. There's disruption in our work. There's dislocation with the ground. There's thistles and thorns and things that God created in the first place don't work out the way he originally attended because he cursed it. If you don't understand that, life must just be unfathomable. Why do these things happen? Why is there domestic violence? Don't these guys get it? But there's sin operating. And if you deny the reality of that, you make life a really hard thing to try and understand. So in chapters 1 and 2, the teacher tells us that he had applied his mind by wisdom to all that is done under the heavens. He undertook many projects and denied himself no pleasure known to mankind and acquired vast wealth. It's like he made his life an experiment to find out what the meaning of life was all about and listen to his conclusion. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaninglessness, are chasing after the wind. Although he had striven by all the natural means available to him to understand all that is under the sun, the teacher experienced the burden of realising he couldn't work it all out. He couldn't comprehend God's plan in its entirety from beginning to end. In his famous book, Confessions, Augustine put it this way. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they can find their rest in you. We're like the desperately nearsighted inching their way along a great tapestry or fresco. But we're nearsighted and we're up close. We can see its quality. We, when we get up close and have a good look, we're astonished by it. 
But when we try and stand back and take it in as a whole, we can't get it. We can't see it. It's all fuzzy and blurry. We can't see it as the creator sees it. Apart from God above, we can't piece together what life is all about on our own. This is a great burden to bear. The natural man suppresses the knowledge of God as creator and of sin and he doesn't comprehend that he's been made for a beautiful relationship with God and he stumbles along like a blind man trying to make sense of what's going on. Although we were created by God perfectly, our hearts have been darkened by sin and its disruptive and disordering effects leave us spiritually ignorant. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18 states this plainly. The Gentiles are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Notice how Paul describes the effects of sin. It darkens our natural understanding of everything. It separates us from the life of God above. We only think about life here. It makes us ignorant about the things of God. It hardens our heart towards God and his plans. Since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, by nature we don't really understand how good God is or how wise and life-giving his ways are. We think we know better, and we try. We're blind to God and to his glory and love, to his grace and power. Our street evangelism team that goes out once a month on Saturday sees this quite regularly. We go up to people and, and try to engage them in a meaningful conversation about things important, and we just see person after person not wanting to know. Thankfully, there are people who do want to know, but so many are disinterested. Both Christians and non-Christians can appreciate and enjoy the wonders of life, but those with no faith in Christ, with no overarching understanding of what it's all about, other than the meaning they want to believe, are just left clueless. And it's a burden. For most people in our society, that boils down to some version or other of eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. This is all there is. I've got a brother that says that to me. He says, make the most of it. You only live once. It's gone then. Writers and musicians have produced some wonderful fairy tales and musicals that portray life as noble and satisfying, like Cinderella who wins the heart of the handsome prince and lives happily ever after. These stories come from that deep-seated place inside of us where eternity has been hardwired by God. We know there's got to be something more than what we see around us. We make up beautiful stories about it. But by nature, because of sin, we misdirect our God-given desire for eternity to lesser things, 
like work or sport or money or sex or fame or power or fashion or adventure or the pursuit of leisure and pleasure or our dream of becoming the best version of me that I can be. That's a common one today. Notice how verses 12 to 14 point us to our heavenly creator and his generosity. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. There's that word alarm. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. But how can we enjoy life as a gift from God if we don't even know there's a God? If we, don't, or if we doubt his existence? This brings us to the third radical point, the final point. And Ecclesiastes can't fully give us this. It hints at it and it points us through to the New Testament. The hope of the gospel is found above, not below. It's found in Christ, not in his creation. God has a plan to rescue people from sin and death and futile living. And he is relentlessly pursuing it. He has shown that plan to us in the Bible. And he's revealed it perfectly in his son, Jesus Christ. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven. His reigning at the right hand of the Father and his promise, I will prepare a place for you. I'm coming back. The New Testament shows us Christ dying on the cross for our sins to reconcile us to God. He took the curse for sin and conquered death, rising from the grave and ascending to heaven as our perfect and glorious representative, the firstborn of many from the dead. Paul reminds us that God planned this from beginning to end. He says to the Corinthians, I want to remind you of of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. What I received I passed on to you as of first importance, ultimate significance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures according to God's predestined plan that he'd written about in the Bible, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, according to God's plan that he's written about in the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Faith takes to heart these things. Faith believes the Bible, that God has written the scriptures and that they come from above. God, is inspired, God above has inspired men below to write his word, and what they've written is truth, and that we need to keep looking upward to Christ for all our help. Colossians 3, 1 to 4 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do we know this? Do we do this? Do we rely on God's gracious salvation that came through the gospel from above? Christ came down from heaven above, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered and died and rose again that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Do we know the goal of creation and history is found in Jesus Christ? He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And if we trust in him, we have life and have it more abundantly. Knowing you were created for a relationship with God for all eternity and that the unwelcome intruder of sin has been dealt with through Jesus on the cross makes all the difference. Listen to the promise of Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's... That's meaning, that's purpose, that's hope, that's life. We know that in all things God works for the good of those of us who love him. Understanding this will make you wiser than philosophers and sages and and suppressing this truth will make you stupid, foolish. In his devotional book, New Morning Mercies, Paul David Tripp speaks about eternity amnesia. He reminds us that God has hardwired eternity into us and if we live as if this life is all that matters, then we have eternity amnesia. Like the bloke walking down the street in Waratah, oblivious to the sun shining above where the passengers on the plane are flying. We were made to live with one eye on now and one eye on eternity. To live only for now would mean we load this life with undeliverable expectations. Knowing your future with God in eternity allows you to be realistic about becoming, without becoming hopeless. It gives you hope when things around you don't encourage much hope because you understand that there is sin in this life, but you also know that God has dealt with sin and your own sin through the cross. If you trust in Jesus Christ, then make sure you don't have eternity amnesia. Remember Christ was raised from the dead and exalted to glory, and he is preparing a place for you above the clouds where the sun always shines as it were and he's preparing a place for you and he will come again to take you to be with him forever that's hope true christian living is long view living 
It is recognising that God has made everything beautiful in its time and has a plan. It means recognising the disruptive, disordering impact of sin on everything, but without losing hope. It means we treasure this life because we know Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again that we might have life, have it more abundantly. We can take photos and do paintings of the beauty around us in creation to the glory of God. We can enjoy the world he made. It's not unfathomable. It's not meaningless. It's not chasing after the wind. I urge you to lay hold of these radical biblical truths. God created me and all the world around me. Secondly, the deepest and most pressing burden in my life is that I have sinned against my creator God. And thirdly, if I confess my sins to my creator and trust in his son Jesus Christ to rescue a sinner like me from death, God is my heavenly father and I will live with him forever when I die. My life is meaningful. In Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise you for the hope that we have in our Lord Jesus. Our hearts ache for those who do not know this, who do not understand their right hand from their left, who attribute the attributes of the creator to, the, to his creation, your creation, who become blind guides of blind people, philosophising, speculating what the purpose of life is all about, becoming nature worshippers, self-worshippers, deluded, and often despairing. Father, will you please lift that burden from their hearts? Will you please use us, your church, to be the answer, to bring an answer to them of the hope that we have? Help us to do that with gentleness and respect. Help us to to show our work colleagues, our friends, our neighbours, our family members who are walking in the darkness burdened that Christ is the way to life, that he has died for sins. He's risen from the grave that if they believe in him, they too will not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we ask for the courage to open our mouth and share these things, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, that we would not be ashamed of you, our God, and the good news that you've put within us as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Thank you, Lord. Give us encouragement. Thank you that when we know you, eternity in our hearts is not a burden, but the greatest joy of all. In Christ's name.
Amén.